Our scripture reading this morning comes from Genesis chapter 27, verses 1 through 38. It's a long passage. You're welcome to remain standing if you're able. Hear now the word of the Lord. When Isaac was old and his eyes were dim so that he could not see, he called Esau, his older son, and said to him, My son. And he answered, Here I am. He said, Behold, I am old. I do not know the day of my death. Now then, take your weapons, your quiver and your bow, and go out to the field and hunt game for me, and prepare for me delicious food such as I love, and bring it to me so that I may eat, that my soul may bless you before I die. Now Rebekah was listening when Isaac spoke to his son Esau. So when Esau went to the field to hunt for game and bring it, Rebekah said to her son, Jacob, I heard your father speak to your brother Esau. Bring me game and prepare for me delicious food that I may eat it and bless you before the Lord before I die. Now therefore, my son, obey my voice as I command you. Go to the flock and bring me two good young goats so that I may prepare from them delicious food for your father such as he loves. And you shall bring it to your father to eat so that he may bless you before he dies. But Jacob said to Rebekah, his mother, Behold, my brother Esau is a hairy man and I am a smooth man. Perhaps my father will feel me and I shall seem to be mocking him and bring a curse upon myself and not a blessing. His mother said to him, let your curse be on me, son. Only obey my voice and go, bring them to me. So he went and took them and brought them to his mother. And his mother prepared delicious food such as his father loved. Then Rebekah took the best garments of Esau, her older son, which were, with her, which were with her in the house, and put them on Jacob, her younger son. And the skins of the young goats she put on his hands and on the smooth part of his neck. And she put the delicious food and the bread which she had prepared into the hand of her son Jacob. So he went in to his father and said, My father. And he said, Here I am. Who are you, my son? Jacob said to his father, I am Esau, your firstborn. I have done as you told me. Now sit up and eat of my game that your soul may bless me. But Isaac said to his son, How is it that you have found it so quickly, my son? He answered, Because the Lord your God granted me success. Then Isaac said to Jacob, Please come near that I may feel you, my son, to know whether you are really my son Esau or not. So Jacob went near to Isaac, his father, who felt him and said, The voice is Jacob's voice, but the hands are the hands of Esau. And he did not recognize him because his hands were hairy like his brother Esau's hands. So he blessed him. He said, are you really my son Esau? He answered, I am. Then he said, bring it near to me that I may eat of my son's game and bless you. So he brought it near to him and he ate and he brought him wine and he drank. Then his father Isaac said to him, come near and kiss me, my son. So he came near and kissed him, and Isaac smelled the smell of his garments and blessed him and said, See, the smell of my son is as the smell of a field that the Lord has blessed. May God give you of the dew of heaven and of the fatness of the earth and plenty of grain and wine. Let people serve you and nations bow down to you. 
Be Lord over your brothers, and may your mother's sons bow down to you. Cursed be everyone who curses you, and blessed be everyone who blesses you. As soon as Isaac had finished blessing Jacob, when Jacob had scarcely gone out from the presence of Isaac, his father, Esau, his brother, came in from his hunting. He also prepared delicious food and brought it to his father. And he said to his father, Let my father arise and eat of his son's game, that you may bless me. His father Isaac said to him, Who are you? He answered, I am your son, your firstborn, Esau. Then Isaac trembled very violently and said, Who was it then that hunted game and brought it to me and I ate it all before you came and I have blessed him? Yes, and he shall be blessed. As soon as Esau heard the words of his father, he cried out with an exceedingly great and bitter cry and said to his father, Bless me, even me also, O my father. But he said, Your brother came deceitfully and he has taken away your blessing. Esau said, Is he not rightly named Jacob? For he has cheated me these two times. He took away my birthright, and behold, now he, was, he has taken away my blessing. And he said to him, Have you not reserved a blessing for me? Isaac answered and said to Esau, Behold, I have made him lord over you and all his brothers. I have given to him for, I have given to him for servants And with grain and wine I have sustained him. What then can I do for you, my son? Esau said to his father, Have you but one blessing, my father? Bless me, even me also, O my father. And Esau lifted up his voice and wept. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Well, as Ben said, we are in a sermon series in Genesis, walking through now the third section of Genesis, starting from chapter 25 all the way to the end. And I want you to recognize something. My guess is no matter how many times you've heard that story, you're still not quite sure exactly who the bad guys are and who the good guys are, right? And Genesis is one of those books in the Bible that has these maddening examples of ending a whole story, and we don't quite know how to neatly categorize where people go, what the motivations are, who's right and who's wrong. You know, our favorite stories oftentimes are the ones that are clear, that in the end we know who we can say is good and who we can say is bad, who we can commend and who we can cancel. And yet Genesis is not like that so often. And of course it is maddening. This is one of those stories. This is one of those stories where no one ends up looking good. And yet, no one ends up being fully rejected except one person, who we'll get to that in a moment. But what we see is throughout Genesis, the faults of our family of faith are never forgotten. They're never swept under the rug, and that's really good news for us because there have been versions in the Christian church and exist now where we wrongly think that to highlight people's faithfulness, we must minimize their faults. But in fact, that's what, the Bible never does that for us. The Bible always holds people's faithfulness clearly and people's faults clearly and calls us to recognize how they come together or at least 
to wrestle out how they fit together. What we see in this passage, and we see it over and over, is that God worked out his purposes through faithful but not faultless people. And we see it over and over and over. A faithful person, you know them, I know them, we see them in Genesis. It's a person who often does get it wrong. We often get it wrong, but our allegiance is aimed toward the Lord. And yet, so often we can be confused and driven by our desires. Sometimes our our aim is right, but our methods are wrong. Sometimes our desires are heading in the right trajectory, but the way we design our life falters. And so in this passage today, we're going to see yet again how God works out His purposes through faithful but not faultless people. And this morning, I want you to think about Genesis as the first season of a TV series, okay? So right now, that's very common. We understand Netflix, Apple TV, all these streaming services. We have a series of seasons, and the Pentateuch is five books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. I want you to think about those as seasons, and I want you to think about every chapter in Genesis, the first season, as an episode. And the reason I want us to do this is because I'm going to walk through this episode, probably a familiar episode to many of you, but we're going to do it uh, through the lens of the director's cut, so to speak. We're going to go through and we're we're going to watch the episode, but then stop it, and then I'm going to talk about it, and I'm going to draw some things out, okay? So that's the framework, and the way I want to do it is I want to highlight that a way you can break this passage down is into a series of four secret meetings, or you could say four private meetings, okay? And that should tell us something about the context. So the first secret meeting is between Isaac and Esau. So look with me. This is in verses 1 through 4. This is when Isaac says his eyes are getting dim, so he can't see well, and he doesn't know when he's going to die. Interestingly, he lives for 80 more years after this. That's just something to know. Uh, But nevertheless, uh, he must not have been doing well at this time. He's in his bedroom. He can barely get up, and he calls Esau in. This should automatically put us on edge because in the book of Genesis and in the Bible in general, when fathers bless their children, it is a momentous family occasion. It's joyous, and everyone's invited, and there's a big celebration. But here, Isaac invites Esau in secretly, just him. But before I go on, stop, pause. What is a blessing and why is it such a big deal? And in fact, if you were here just a couple weeks ago, you would have listened to me preach Genesis 25 and you would think, wait a minute, isn't this the same story? What's different? Well, that was when Jacob stole the birthright and here is when Jacob steals the blessing. Now, how do those go together? We're not honestly exactly sure how they go together, or why Esau seems to have seen them as two separate things. But there are some things that we know. We know that the birthright and the blessing pertain to what then was known for inheritance rights, right? Who gets the inheritance and how much do they get? And so it seems that the birthright would have been the property. It would have been the wealth. In this case, it would have been the the sheep, the herds, uh, the servants, the, the land, all of these things. We've gotten the birthright. And yet there's something else 
that seems less tangible, but it might be the more important thing to Esau here, and that is the blessing from the Father. But when you put both the birthright and the blessing together, they make this, uh, this idea where the older son, or the one who receives both of them, they now are in charge of the economic realities, the social realities, the religious realities of the family. They are now in charge. So they become the head of the family. They carry on the family tradition. They define the family's understanding of itself, either in good directions or bad directions. And we know that theologically in Genesis, while all of that's true about any family of the earth, this family is unique because the one who receives the blessing is the one who receives the promise to Abraham. The one who receives the promise that God is going to make them the the biggest, greatest nation, the most blessed nation, and that they are to give that blessing away to others. So this is a big deal. So why would Isaac hide this? Well, as he's trying to hide it, Rebekah somehow overhears what's happening. Look with me in verse 5. Now Rebekah was listening when Isaac spoke to his son Esau. I mean, we don't know if she was somewhere in the room, probably not, but who knows, but at least she overheard it, maybe through the tent somehow. She, she hears them talking. So she's listening to this whole conversation, and then as soon as Esau leaves, she goes in to action. But this should, this should we need to pause and note something here. Uh, the family is not working together, but they're conspiring against one another, and this is not good. We see a fragmented family already. And this is new. This is different than Abraham and Sarah. In fact, if we look in Genesis 16 and Genesis 21, we see that that Abraham and Sarah listen to the spiritual counsel of one another regarding the inheritance. They listen to one another. They talk to one another. But here, somehow there's already been a rift in the family, and Isaac and Rebekah are not communicating. In fact, if you were to look through all the times when Rebecca speaks or Isaac speaks, it's always your brother, never my son. Or it's your father. Rebecca doesn't say my husband. There's a deep rift in this family and the fractured reality of the family is now threatening the very promise of God. So Rebecca's listening and that moves us to the second secret meeting. We get, we get started off in the secret meetings between the father and the and the eldest, and now the second secret meeting is between the mother and the youngest. So look with me here when Rebecca in verse 6 calls Jacob. Rebecca said to her son Jacob, I heard your father speak to your brother. You see that? I heard your father speak to your brother, and so on. Bring the game to me and prepare for me delicious food that I may eat it, and so on. So she recalls what's happening to Jacob. Now what's interesting for us to see here is that Rebecca is the chief actor and her spiritual values, as one commentator says, are right. She actually believes a couple of chapters ago when God said that the youngest will serve the, the oldest will serve the youngest. She believes that. And now think about it from her perspective. She doesn't understand why Isaac is trying to go against God's word. What is she supposed to do? She's in a very challenging situation here. Right? I wrote in my notes, what is, a, what is a believing wife to do in this example? Right? You might think, don't the, don't the ends justify the means? Wouldn't it be better for her to break a few of God's less important laws to make sure that his long-term promise stands? Isaac is going 
directly against the word of the Lord. And before I go on, I just want to pause. Do you recognize this temptation? Because I certainly do. Do you ever find yourself in that place where you have maybe the right aim or the right desire, but, you, but you're afraid it's not going to happen, so you start taking things into your own hands? As Ben said earlier, what do we do when we don't get what we want? What do we do there? Well, in this case, Rebecca, like her son, Jacob, begins to take things into her own hands. Think about this. When we begin to justify sin in our hearts and our minds, what we're doing is ignoring the consequences. We kind of think as long as we don't get caught, then the sin will be okay. As long as we can mitigate the consequences, then things will be okay. Right? This is Satan's schemes. We see him try to pull this over on Jesus. We see him do it successfully in the garden with Adam and Eve. There's this entertaining of justification. And what we actually see is that Jacob is falling for this temptation, right? What is Jacob's response? His response to his mother is not, hey, I don't think this is a good idea. This isn't right. This isn't right. We can't do this to our father. That, that's not at all his hesitation. His hesitation is, but what if I get caught? Do you see what he says? Perhaps my father will feel me, this is verse 12, and I shall seem to be mocking him and bring a curse upon myself and not a blessing. And then his mother just glibly says, well, let your curse be on me, son. Only obey me and, and go and do as I say. Obey my voice. Think about that. How often do you and I take matters into our own hands and justify disobedience for the sake of a good thing? How often do you and I do that? I mean, think about this. She was in a tough situation. She was right. What was about to take place was wrong. It was against God's clear word. That's true. But what is it like for me and you when we start taking things and matters into our own hands as though we can dictate our own future. Listen, so often what we do is we try to, we try to use our means, right, to bring about God's purposes. Th this was not the last resort. I'm sorry, this was the last resort. There were so many things in between that she could have done. Think about this. What could she have done to use means that were right? Well, she could have entered into the room right away when the conversation was happening and said, whoa, 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 hold on a second. We, and looked at her husband and said, this is not how it's supposed to go. We know God told us this is not the way it's supposed to go. What are you doing? That would have been a loving thing to do. Instead, she chooses deceit. She could have done that and prayed. She could have prayed and then interrupted later. There are lots of ways in which she could have used the means that God had given her. We see people in Genesis before her, faithful people, praying and engaging the Lord. But I think you and I, when we feel like something really important in our lives is about to be taken away, we forget prayer and we go straight to our own strength and we grasp and we strive and we take and I think we can understand the situation Rebecca's in at some level. And so what's important for this scene as we move on is that while it seems half-baked to us, it's like, first of all, who's that Harry? Is anyone actually that Harry? 
And then second of all, it's like, it would, this would never work. This is a bad idea. So it seems that way to us. But really what the narrator is trying to tell us is they, they tried to examine every way in which their plan could fail and they had an answer for it. So they really thought this out, okay? So he, he obeys the voice of his mother and he goes and does all that she says. He's all strapped up with all the hair all over him, his hands, his neck, all the stuff. And now the next private meeting is between Isaac and Jacob and they have this secret meeting. So look with me in verse 18. So he went into his father and said, my father. And he said, here I am. Who are you, my son? Jacob said to his father, I am Esau, your firstborn. Okay, so this obviously is a bold-faced lie. But it shouldn't surprise us. But at least we think, okay, he had the moment, right? There was a question, and he could have, he could have said, it's Jacob. He could have aborted the whole thing. But now we see he's committed He's committed to his deceit, just as they had planned. And in order to understand the context of this, it's really important. The narrator actually wants us to highlight that Isaac isn't only physically blind, he's also become spiritually blind in some way. And for example, uh, the word game, food, the word game is used eight times. The word tasty food is used six times. And so what the narrator is trying to do is tell us that Isaac has become most interested in his gut, the desires, his senses, what he can see, what he can feel, what he can taste, what he can smell. And those disordered desires are clouding his judgment. And they're threatening the promise of God. And so it's in this context that the wife and the youngest son plan the deception. They know how to fool him. They know his weak spot. But then, not only do we see here that Jacob decides to go for it, now our hope is in, well, maybe, maybe Isaac will figure it out. So look at this. He answers, it's me. It's Esau. Or it's Esau, your firstborn. I've done as you told me. Which, he doesn't know that anyone else knows what was going on. So he, he's inclined to say, this must be Esau. But then he asks this question. Isaac said to his son, well, how is it that you found it so quickly, my son? This is the first of five questions related to his senses. This one's logic, his thinking. He's basically saying, this doesn't make sense. How did you get back so fast? It usually takes longer to go hunt something, kill it, cook it, and bring it back. And then he steps up the lie. Jacob steps up the lie. He answered because the Lord your God granted me success. This is a direct breaking of the third commandment. He takes the Lord's name in vain. Then Isaac said to Jacob, okay, well, well, come near me so I can feel you. So now it's to a different sense. He's, well, okay, maybe that's true, but if I can feel him, and then, then I can tell. So he comes closer. Verse 22, so Jacob went near to Isaac, his father, who felt him and said, The voice is Jacob's voice, but the hands are the hands of Esau. So he knows the voice is Jacob's voice. So which sense is he going to trust? In just a moment, we'll see that his sense of smell smells like Esau. So he now has made it make sense in his logic. He now has felt the hair, and he said, well, maybe that's Esau. He then later smells, and he says, oh, that's probably Esau. But what is the sense that he knows, tells him the truth. 
and he ignores it so that he can fill his belly with the food. It's his hearing. And the reason that's important is because in Deuteronomy, explicitly in chapter 4, but all throughout the Bible, we know that God's people are to be a people of the ear. We are to trust God's promises, his word that we receive over and above the strength of our hands, over and above our own sense of logic and wisdom, over and above what we see in front of us. You see, Jacob fails. The senses that he trusted in ultimately are what fail him. And he he disregards both the promise that God had given them, and in this moment, he disregards his own hearing, his own ear. And you know, for us, I think that we can resonate with that. How often do our senses or our gut begin to rule us? Our desires become disordered and we become numb and blind to the promises of God, the very explicit ones. We try to massage them. We try to talk ourselves out of direct obedience. We sort of blindly walk off so many cliffs. You know, you think about it, um, sensuality, and that is to say, in this case, what I mean by that is simply the material blessings like food and like beauty and things that we experience, they're so good and so right. And the Bible nowhere rejects those outright. In fact, last chapter with Abimelech, Ben talked about they had a feast. They had a feast when they made this covenant, which is normal and good and beautiful. Even here we see a meal, a, very, a feast that God doesn't only speak to us, but we also get a smell and taste and touch and hear his promises. So this is called the visible word. And yet, we all know that we have a propensity to give ourselves over to our desires. We have a propensity when our desires are disordered to forget the word and promises of God and to trust in our own desires. Now, at New City, in our common rhythm, this is why we have both a feast practice and a fasting practice. Because, you see, we understand that God's good gifts of food and senses and smell are good, and we want to embrace those together in community. There are very few things that bring together community like bread and wine, like food and drink and conversation and sitting around a shared table, both with strangers and family and friends. And the Bible is filled with this. And so Isaac is right to love food. And yet, we also know that we can so easily forget the one who gives us the food. The food and the, and the drink stop pointing us to the gift giver and the gift itself consumes all of our senses, our imagination, our dreams, our hopes, everything. That's happened to Isaac. He's not ending very well at this moment. And so for us, I'm wondering, where, where do you need to lean into the fasting practice? You see, we say that fasting is primarily food. We get that from the Bible and, and the church, in church history. But there are many things that we can fast from. What do you and I need to say no to? What do we need to deny ourselves? Something that's good. We don't fast from bad things. Right? I mean, that, you get rid of those things. You don't fast for a time from bad things. You fast from good things that have become godlike things, as it's been said. And so what we realize here is that it's disordered desires. It's desires that have become too great that are clouding Isaac's 
sight. Where is that happening to you and me? Where are we giving ourselves over to our gut, to our senses? Could it be screens? Could it be food? Could it be all types of entertainment? Could it be cable news networks that just fill us with rage? It could be a lot of things. I'm trying to expand our understanding of where are we being fooled as people stoke our base desires that blind us and our spiritual eyes. Where's that happening? The base desires of good food and game took out Isaac in this moment. Where's that happening to us? So we come to the end of this particular secret meeting between Isaac and Jacob, and everything seems to go fine. It seems to have worked. And he, he sneaks out in verse 18. This is the final secret meeting. Now it's between Isaac and Esau. And uh, we see after the blessing in verse 30, as soon as Isaac had finished blessing Jacob, Jacob had scarcely gone out from the presence of, his, of Isaac, his father, and Esau, his brother, came in from hunting. You can imagine how confusing this would be for Isaac. And in fact, he is confused because Esau now brings in delicious food and brought it to his father. And he said, here I am. Here's my game. It's like deja vu. And so Isaac's confused and he says, well, who are you? And Esau said, I'm your son, your firstborn, Esau. Same thing. He's like, wait a minute. Am I going crazy? What's happening? But he knows what's happening. He knew it. Why? Because he knew it was Jacob. He said, this is Jacob's voice. But you know what? I really want this food. It smells so good. It's going to taste so good. And so he trembles with anger, violently, trembled very violently and said, who was it then that hunted game and brought it to me and, and I ate it all before you came and I've blessed him? Yes, and he shall be blessed. And of course they know. As soon as Esau heard the words of the father, he, he cries out, Father, you have to bless me too. And then he says, without skipping a beat, that is to say, Isaac says, well, it, was, it was your brother. And Esau says, is he not rightly named Jacob? Which means heel grabber or deceiver. That's what the name means. Did he not deceive me again? He took my birthright and now he takes the blessing. And you know what's interesting here? What do you make of Isaac? Right? I've been pretty hard on him so far. What do you make of Isaac? Well, we have to give the final say to the Bible itself. And in Hebrews chapter 11, sometimes called the Hall of Faith, there's one verse in there about this chapter. And what, it, what, what the writer of Hebrews says is that when Isaac blessed, it says, Jacob and Esau, because what we didn't read is he did give Esau a blessing, but it really sounds like a curse. It's the opposite of what he said to Jacob. But this is what the writer of the Hebrews says. He says he did this in faith. Isn't that interesting? He did this in faith. How is he faithful? I thought he was faithless. Here's the thing. This is the, this is the crazy-making thing to us about the Bible, and honestly, reality. Right? When people aren't, when people have mixed motives, when people are confused, Okay, so this was the deal. The faith that Isaac had was that the blessing and promises of God were real. He had ultimate faith in God's ability 
to bring about what he said he was going to do in their family. Now, that's strange because they really don't have a lot in their eyes to look on. They're not a massive nation yet at this point. But he knew that the promise of God was right, so he trusted God there. So that was good. That was in faith. But it was his desires that misdirected what he was going to do, who he was going to give that blessing to. And he recognizes here by faith when he says to Esau, I can't do it. He recognizes I was wrong. I was wrong. That's how we're to understand based on the writer of the Hebrews how the story actually ends up for Isaac. But in this secret meeting with Esau, isn't it tempting? Don't we, aren't we drawn to Esau at this point? We're kind of drawn to feel sorry a little bit for Esau. At least I am. I don't know if you are. He weeps. He weeps. And then the writer of the Hebrew says, uh, repeats that, that he weeps and he longed for this blessing, but he wouldn't get it. And what commentators help us see is that Esau has remorse, but he shows no signs of repentance. And there's a difference there. He, he feels bad for himself that he's not going to get the blessing or the birthright. That's true. But what he could have done was recognize God's promise that this was the way it was supposed to be. And he could have gone to his brother and he could have said to his brother, because I trust God, I am willing to submit to you. But instead, in his own anger, as we look at the rest of his life, he never comes close to anything like that. What he does is he continues to lean into the base desires that he's defined by over and over. And in fact, remember in Hebrews chapter 12, the writer says, don't be like Esau who loved the world. And so you see what we see in this whole story, this whole episode through these director's cuts is that you and I, when we look at this We just want to sit in the grandstands and say, who's good, who's bad, separate them and move forward. But in fact, we're invited in to see ourselves in each one of these characters. We're invited in to see, like Jacob, how we're willing to deceive. Rebecca, how we're willing to deceive. Isaac, how we can be blinded by our own sensuality, our own desire to fulfill our guts and our desires. Same with Esau. And yet, if we stop there, it wouldn't be enough. Because really, where this leaves us when we walk through this episode in chapter 27 is it shows us again the pattern of God's promise that God is always gracious. It shows us that no one deserves to be the vehicle of God's blessing. No one in Genesis deserves to be that. No one. We all have faults. And so where we're left is with a desire for a redeemer. We're left with a desire that can't someone show up and be a true hero? Can't someone show up and obey? And of course, someone does show up and obey. When we understand that this isn't the first time that skins have been put on someone, we, we recognize in Genesis chapter 3, skins were put on someone else, but that was in the Garden of Eden. When God himself put animal skins as clothing on Adam and Eve to cover their nakedness and shame, he sacrificed animals. But here is the counterexample. And it, it's to point us, ultimately, 
to Jesus. And I want to show you how as we close. One commentator says it this way. Our Redeemer was also to be found dressed in clothes that were not his. But in the case of Jesus, the clothing that he wore at the climactic moment of his life was not the stolen finery of Esau, but rather a purple robe on loan from the Roman soldiers and then a shroud borrowed from Joseph of Arimathea. What is more, Jesus took that path not in order to steal someone else's blessing for himself, but rather to take upon himself our curse. In the most awesome reversal of all, Jesus would graciously say to us what Rebecca rashly said to her son, let your curse fall on me. Think about that statement. Think about that statement. The words Rebecca said so carelessly, never thinking that they might come true, Jesus also said to us, even though he knew the full depths of what he was saying. Jesus would take your curse so that you might inherit his blessing. The curse that Jacob deserved for his trickery, the curse that you and I earn for ourselves every day by all of our sinfulness was laid upon Jesus so that the blessing that was rightfully his might be given to us, his undeserving people. And ultimately, Jesus wore the shroud of death that we deserved so that we might lawfully be clothed in our elder brother's garments, the spotless robes of Christ's righteousness. You see the great reversal? You see, you and I are like Jacob. When we feel our need for righteousness, we put on the clothes of striving. We put on the clothes of success. We put on the clothes of our own self-righteousness, building our own kingdoms. Because we know, we know that we're not righteous. And yet, Jesus clothes himself in our unrighteousness so that we can be clothed in his righteousness. It's amazing. It is the good news of the gospel. You and I can go out now not trying to present, present ourselves to God in skins that look, feel, and smell a certain way because we've been gifted that clothing. This is good news. This is good news indeed. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for your word in ways that we see ourselves so often uh, in the faith and faults of our fathers and mothers in the faith. It is a gift to see your mercy and kindness over and over your provision, all of the ways in which you provide for your people, you lead your people. And Lord Jesus, we see ultimately that you are the greater Jacob. You are the faithful Isaac. You are the greater Rebecca, the only one who can actually take our curse. And we ask, Holy Spirit, that you would now point out to us very specific ways in which we've confessed our sin and you have forgiven us as we come to your meal for nourishment. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.